Want to know more about what your favorite ninjas have on their minds? Check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's a great listen for any Ninja Warrior fan. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Karim Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid Podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani. This is a two-parter. Part two, coming up later, Lucas Navarrete and I are going to do a mailbag, answer your questions, and tackle uh, some of your your kind of concerns about Real Madrid's injury crisis and how we're going to play against Levante and some other things. Part one, happening right now. Very exciting. It's our historical segment where we watch old Real Madrid games and this particular episode, we're going to talk about one of the most iconic games in Real Madrid history. It's Real Madrid 7, Eintracht Frankfurt 3, the 1960 European Cup final. Um, an incredible game from Di Stefano, Pushkas, and others. And joining me to break this down is Matt Wiltsy. How you doing, hey. Matt? <laughs> good, good, Kian. Doing well. And of course, Om Arvind. Um Finally joining us in one of these daytime segments has has woken up at the the crack of dawn for him, which is 10 a.m. Eastern. Om, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. Um, finally, I can do one of these because I've. This is like one of the only old games that I watched in a time when I actually had time to do that in the good old undergraduate days where I was living on campus and all I did was watch football matches. As as you should be doing when you're living on campus, um, Matt. You, so you chose this game. Um, we kind of we basically passed this this segment around and and asked different people to choose the, choose it each time. Um, because you chose it, maybe you can set us up here. What should the listeners know before we start talking about this game? Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I had messaged you while watching this game, and I was I was laughing because i was like oh my god i don't know what what we got into trying to watch this game was a little bit difficult just because of the camera angle the cameraman basically just zoomed in on wherever the ball was and so it made you a little bit (laughs) nauseous um so a little bit rough to watch but yeah so this was the 1960 final um this was i believe the fifth european cup that real madrid won and um kind of the last um Hurrah for guys like De Stefano and Pushkas, um, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But I was I was really really impressed with Hento, and mm. um, this is this is the team that kind of gave Real Madrid the folk- folklore that they have today. Um, gave them made us who we are in the European Cup. Kind of created that relationship, and so I think it's only fitting that we uh, that we uh, covered this game. It's interesting uh, that you chose this game. Actually, I I wouldn't say I cheated, but I lucked out that you chose this game because um, I actually rewatched this entire game before you chose it uh, because I'm, I, I broke it down quite extensively for my book. Um, and Om actually wrote an article about this particular game as well. Um, so Om, I'm sure, was obviously happy you chose this game as well because we, we kind of do have some notes on it already. Om, do you want to add anything in, in terms of 
um, kind of just setting up this final, like anything else that we yeah. should, we should a little preamble maybe or. Yeah. So I just building off what Matt was talking about with the significance of this game is like, you know, I, I think like narratively we tend to always take like the, you know, the final victory or the last hurrah, as as Matt put it, as like having the most symbolic significance. Mm. And sometimes we can be guilty of kind of forcing that narrative. But I think in this case, it really was true. Mainly because, you know, to for these games really to to experience the greatness and witness it, you had to you had to watch it live. And so those four Champions League finals you know, they happen outside of, like, England, Scotland, Wales. And so, like, you know, British fans essentially were like, I don't see what the big deal is about Real Madrid. Like, how can a team outside, you know, our island be the best in the world? And when they played in Hampton Park versus Eintracht Frankfurt in the, for their fifth consecutive European Cup final, like, the evidence was incontrovertible. There was no denying that this was the greatest team the world had ever seen up to this point. And that really like enhanced mythos of Real Madrid just beyond you know the just beyond the country of Spain it was when the world really recognized because the British newspapers at the time and even today right like they still kind of lead the sport of football and when they acknowledge yeah this is clearly the best team of all time that basically made it fact and Sir Alex Ferguson was in that stadium as an 18 year old watching that game and that greatly influenced the way he wanted to play football. Now, like, Ferguson, like, had two decades managing Manchester United. Um, but if you were to take his modern Manchester United teams, I think you can see a lot of similarities in the way <clears throat> in the way that they played in terms of that, like, fast side-to-side build-up and in, in the way they emphasized a really, you know, you know volume-crossing approach and, and just the way they attacked and the speed at which they did it there are some rough similarities and it was clear that like when Ferguson gave interviews much, much later about when he watched the game, that the way this Real Madrid side played influenced one of the greatest, you know, modern teams in history, which was Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United side. I'm glad you guys brought this up um, before we get into the game in terms of just like um, the importance of them finally appearing on TV because they had won four straight European titles and all people really had in terms of being able to analyze the team for themselves, was word of mouth, newspapers, there was no real film. That day, um, not only did were, were people finally being able to see these guys on TV, the commentator kept repeating, you know, this is the, this is the greatest team that has ever existed. There was 127,000 people in the stadium, which <laughs> that in itself is like, it's just, it's just a crazy number um, to, to kind of fit into a stadium. Um, and then, and then the, you turn it on. It's like this, just this masterclass. There's Gento doing flicks and Di Stefano and Puskas, like one of the just amazing, most amazing performances in European Cup final history or European Cup history. Um, you could actually like hear like oohs and ahs in the crowd on the broadcast. Um, and I, so I think like it's interesting, Matt. Like we were talking about the 2000 Champions League final last week. And the wonky formation of this like five three two with Redondo as the only central midfielder, two number nines, plus Raúl, um, a winger as a central midfielder. You could now you can fast uh, rewind forty years, and it gets even crazier because on paper it's like this three two four one, but as this match unfolds, it's like not that. 
What is it? What what is it that you saw that this was from even all the the uh, the limited TV angles we had? Yeah, the limited TV angles made it a little bit difficult, but um, yeah, I mean, Real Madrid just from the out, like even from the minute go, they were just all out attack and looked to just be. They were so direct, and I think um, you kind of had Pushkas and De Stefano playing as the strikers. Sorry about that. It's okay. Dogs um, always welcome. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you had Pushkas and De Stefano playing as the strikers, um, Hento on the left wing, and then Carino on I think I'm saying his name right on the right wing. Uh, Canario, Canario, and then um, uh, two central midfielders, and more or less, more or less, like you said, three in the back, um, and it was just kind of like all out attack, and I think. What I really liked was you would see De Stefano, especially. He was just kind of everywhere, and he would come deep, win the ball. He would come deep to pick up the ball. He would combine really well with uh, both wingers, Hento and Canario. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it was. I was just really surprised at just kind of how all-out attack it was. Um, I also think like. This was essentially Di Stefano was a false nine before false nine was cool, like in in fashion, like fifty years later. Um, you can kind of see like Frankfurt seemed almost a bit confused at Di Stefano's role, like they they because they they played this kind of this man marking scheme where like if you it's almost like the equivalent of like watching a basketball game now where like everyone just has their man. They were so rigid in that defensive ideology that it was. They just couldn't understand how to even keep up with Di Stefano. Like they were, they were, they were totally dumbfounded by the idea of someone could have a free roll and literally drop deep in between the center backs to receive the ball, and then on the next sequence be in the box. Like it's just he had a crazy role, and I, yeah, I think we should get into Di Stefano a bit later um, because I, he honestly could deserve his, deserves his own podcast in many ways, but certainly deserves a good chunk of time during this podcast. Um, um, can you like just talk about maybe Di Stefano's role a little bit and how how that affected things? Yeah, so just to quickly give you like Frankfurt's formation because that I mean that basically will like help explain why Di Stefano was so effective. So like they were playing in roughly like a three two two three, and it wasn't nearly as fluid as as Real Madrid's system. It was actually pretty pretty structured. It was a lot easier to see. And that was like a natural evolution from the original two-three-five formation. So they had three center backs, two defensive midfielders, two attacking midfielders, and then three forwards with two of those forwards playing out wide, basically like wingers. And so pretty quickly, Frankfurt decided that they had to start pressing Real Madrid's back line because Real Madrid were kind of building short from the back. It was it was still very vertical. It was still very fast, but Real Madrid were playing short from the back. And so the three forwards would press, um, or sorry, the forward and the attacking midfielders would press the center backs, and the wide forwards would have to stay wide because Hento and Canario would actually drop deep to receive the ball. So that left this like big space behind them through which Di Stefano could drop and overload, basically be a one-man overload because the defensive midfielders couldn't follow him because Real Madrid had two central midfielders that were occupying him. So Di Stefano was always the free man. And because just because of the nature of Frankfurt's press, Real Madrid would generally play wide to either Canario or Hento 
Um, and Di Stefano would gravitate towards that flank and create passing triangles and be that outlet back to the center of the pitch. And so when he receives the ball, he either played it to one of our central midfielders, Vidal or Zaraga, or if he had the space, he'll just charge for it himself. And when he does that, that'll like trigger a reaction for Pushkas or Del Sol, who is the other striker, to drop deep and receive the ball and combine with him. So he was like our key to ball progression, to getting out of any kind of defensive trap. It was Di Stefano. And he was, like Matt was saying, he was literally everywhere. That was not an exaggeration. If there was any point where Real Madrid would have the ball, Di Stefano would be 10 yards away. And like that level of intelligent positioning and more so athletic ability and stamina to be doing that at that time is absolutely crazy. And like, you know, because they were also playing a man marking system, like he was almost dragging players out of position because if one of the defensive midfielders realized that Di Stefano was the key, they would have to abandon position and leave one of our central midfielders free. So they were, they were confused. And, you know, the, the commentator, um, Kenneth Wollstenholm, I think I said that correctly. Um, he mentioned that like, yeah, like this man marking scheme isn't working and Di Stefano is dropping, you know, is dropping too deep and it's messing up basically Frankfurt's entire system. And I, I think that really was the key to us winning the game. There were a lot of other, you know, really important players as well, but Di Stefano and, and, essentially destabilize Frankfurt's entire defensive system. There's, um, I, I think we should just talk about like how, not necessarily how some of this would hold up today, but I often think we were so quick to dismiss history, history because we think of it as so outdated and kind of behind the times and something that, it, that you know, just wouldn't work now. And while I think a lot of that is true, um, it just, it reminds me a little bit just to kind of, and this is part of the reason why I wanted to do this historical segment on a regular basis. You saw it a little bit with um, the discussion that was floating around the last couple of days about Van Dyke being the best central defender ever. And I, I forget who, which ex-player brought this up, but it caused like this whirlwind of discussion. And I and I just thought to myself, like how quickly we just completely. It, it's almost as if like history doesn't exist. Like the, some of the greatest central defenders of all time, whether it was Nesta, Baresi, you know, Maldini who played there some of his career and Beckenbauer and these guys, like how unbelievably otherworldly they were. And it wasn't that long ago when their play would still hold up, I think. Um, and I always thought of like the quote unquote black and white era. I, I think that it was just crazy for me to even compare. And I still think it is. But I, I watched Di Stefano in this game and I somehow think he was actually underrated. Like we, we see him as... Um, maybe the top two, a top two Real Madrid player of all time, but rarely is he ever discussed in like the greatest ever conversation outside of Real Madrid circles or maybe outside of Argentina circles. Um, and I just think like he may have been underrated. Like he was, there was so many things in this game that was just like impressive to me. And this wasn't even considered his peak. I don't think this was like the four years preceding this. Um, actually, the s- seven years preceding this, believe it or not, he was the top scorer every year. This was the first year Pushkas was the top scorer, and um, I just think like his versatility, his elegance with the ball, like aesthetically, he was kind of like Zidane too, and he also had the ball spot, so you could even like mistake the two <laughs> if you really wanted to try hard. Um, but he could score goals, he could drop deep. Like you guys have both already mentioned, the tactical wrinkles of dragging players out of position. Um, even defended even defending um he could go on the wing if and and put some you know play some balls in from there if he wanted to he could link up with other players i just think like him 
his legacy, like we we can never let this be lost. There's just like something we have a duty here to like keep it going and this is part of the reason why I just wanted to revisit it. And I'm, and I'm really glad now in hindsight that Matt chose this game for that reason. And yeah, and Keon, I think the other point you briefly made there was this wasn't even to Stefano's peak. He was actually well into his 30s now. And um, we no, I mean, I don't think his peak was even ever televised. He was with new old boys and just mm. uh, destroying it in Argentina or was it River Plate? I might be wrong, uh, but just destroying it in Argent- Argentina. And just that was his peak. And we were not we didn't even see that. So um, and there, I think your point about. Um, whether or not this would translate over into the modern game. And obviously it's so difficult with just modern sports science and the way the players take care of their bodies now and recovery and just the overall physique and fitness levels of the players today. But um, I think there's certain like certain players that as long as they had that um, kind of those same standards brought over, they would probably translate over to the game. I think you could pick and choose certain players. And for me, the three that – really stood out in this game were obviously De Stefano, Pushkas, and then Hento. And I'm sure we'll get into discussion on Hento because I was just I out of the three, I think maybe it's just because I wasn't expecting it, but I was so impressed with Hento. Um I thought he was probably the most underrated from that era and just doesn't get talked about in the same light when he probably should. I mean he was so frighteningly fast, like just unbelievably fast. <laughs> no one, not a soul on that Eintracht team could get anywhere near him. Uh, he uh, he reminded, I mean, I get why people kind of say like Bale and they both wear the number 11, um, played on the left. Like I get that comparison. And um, he just, he, like he was doing, he was so skillful as well though. He was doing like all these different moves and um, things you would see today, kind of uh, Brazilian-like. Yeah. And um, you weren't seeing that from any other player on the pitch. And so I was, I really, really loved what I saw from Hento. Yeah, I guess we got to talk about Hento now because, like, he's my he's my favorite Real Madrid legend. And it's one for, like, the pace that you were talking about, Matt, and then the skill. And it's like he, you know, nowadays, like, a game has become so professional that, like, if you see like a seasoned veteran like trying a trick and they lose the ball, like people will lose their minds. Like it's not even like in the early two thousands where it was kind of like the Ronaldinho era and stuff, and like fans expected that. Now it's like you know you make the right decision every single time. But like Hento, like is like from that era where like the players, at least some of them, still played primarily for entertainment for themselves. You know, I don't know if that was the case for other Real Madrid players on the team, but Hento, like, you know, he would do Rabonas, he would do Sombreros, he would, like, play all these flick passes, you know, in completely, like, it, it, oftentimes it was completely unnecessary. Like, like Pushkas is five yards away from him, <laughs> yeah. and he's like, why don't I just try Rabona pass? And a couple of times it led to losses of possession, and that didn't seem to bother him at all. And that, like, that's kind of like the romantic side of the game, right? Like, just playing for the pure joy of playing. Um, but he wouldn't have been on the team if like that was all he did, right? Like just doing some tricks and then losing some ball- like losing balls like at times. He was an extremely effective player despite like that mild inefficiency in his play. You know, one was because of his pace, um, which like created this deadly one-two connection with Pushkas. Like Pushkas would often like drop deep, move to the left, you know, receive the ball from deep. 
you know, play play a pass to Hento, receive it back, and then release him down the flank. And that pretty much guaranteed a free cross down the left. But also, I think Hento used his skill really well in one versus one situation. So he was always stretching the defense. And remember that Frankfurt was playing with a back three. So that, that had an even greater effect than you'd think it would have on a back four today. And like, it was just endless amounts of crossing opportunities coming from him, coming from his end. So like, he was an extremely effective player. I think he recorded like, you know, a hundred goals in his career or a hundred assists or something like that in his career. And he like was, I think, the third most iconic player on that side. So like, there was Di Stefano was number one, obviously. Then there was Pushkas, and then there was Hento, and those were kind of the three defining attacking players at that time that I think kind of told the story of the attack. So Di Stefano was the total footballer, Pushkas was the elite goal scorer, and then Hento was like the one with flair and the one with pace. And I think like that's kind of like the perfect representation of what, what Real Madrid's attack meant at that time. Yep. How long do you think it would take if he played now for like for him to like dominate a game and then do one trick like superfluously and it goes like out of bounds or like uh, it goes like off the mark and then they fans would ask for him to be sold on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All it takes is like a couple couple thousand retweets on on Twitter and then everyone's like, "Get this man out of here." <clears throat> I think his like to me it seemed like uh, with Hento he seemed. I mean, I I don't. I don't really have any way to prove this, but he seemed maybe to be okay with not being in the the to stardom the way Di Stefano and Pushkas were, and kind of he had to accept that role regardless because, um, you know, because he played in that era, he was just not going to get the recognition maybe he deserved. And I think in some ways he's a victim of that. Like if maybe he played, let's say in the Yaya era or maybe in the seventies where there wasn't like a crazy amount of legends coming through, maybe his legacy would be a bit bigger. Um. In a way, it kind of reminds me of Garincha and Pele. Like, we only talk about Pele. Garincha was an unbelievable dribbler the way Gento was. But um, he kind of got lost in the limelight because of, you know, the the figures that he played alongside of. Um, so, and I think um, because of that, maybe he just, he won't get the recognition he, he deserved. But he was an amazing player to watch, really uh, just fun aesthetically, very smooth, really good winger. I think Olmo already kind of mentioned some of the, the maybe superfluous stuff that he did to do that may have brought some frustration if you played in the modern era. But overall, I think he obviously is one of the more underrated players um, and probably deserves to be talked about more. Um, where do you want to go from here? I think... Um, I think we can discuss like overall... I don't think we can say like tactics because it wasn't really the same as like the modern day like way we conceive of tactics. But I guess like just tactical things to talk about, well, just from a more collective sense. Well, the collective stuff I think is like really interesting because you look at this team from top to bottom, and it was really actually just spectacular. Um, it it had a lot of the 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 little ingredients that require a dynasty to to have, and that was they had the goat and Di Stefano. They had the superstar accomplice in Pushkas. They had the wizard who didn't really mind getting all the headlines in Gento. They had like this elite defensive organizer in Santa Maria. Glue guys like Del Sol and Zaraga. And then, you know, kind of like the more like humble heroes like Pacin and Vidal and Canario, Marquitos. Oh, and, and maybe uh, an underrated piece here, Miguel Munoz, who was like the OG mm-hmm. of like, yep. you know, man management. <laughs> 
um, getting all these all of this to click. So, yeah, I mean, feel free to take it in any direction you want. Maybe Om, like you can just tell us like what what piece really interested you in this game. Well, Miguel Munoz. I mean, we got to talk about Canary at some point because he, like, in my opinion, is like the 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 prototype of like the underrated hardworking player who had a lot more technical ability than he was given credit for. But that can wait because Miguel Munoz was, I think, kind of the the perfect example of what a great Real Madrid manager has tended to be in history, which is a focus on man management, you know, a focus on making sure all his best players are out there in about in a, in something that is still kind of a balanced system with some basic solid fundamental tactics that enhances the star talent in his team and allows the individuals to express themselves. And if you think like Del Bosque and Chiladi, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of what when we think of like what a generally a great Real Madrid Real Madrid manager should be for Real Madrid, we generally type we think of those types of guys. And so like you know, like I, like we all said, there were the stars out there on the pitch. It was extremely fluid with Di Stefano dropping all the time. Pushkas and Del Sol would also drop quite a bit as well, just to like kind of capitalize on the fact that Di Stefano was drawing Frankfurt's structure deeper. Um, and if you're like, if you watch, if you watch that game with like kind of just kind of like a lazy eye, you it's easy to see how someone could be like, yeah, there wasn't really, you know, the manager just sat back and was like, guys, just do whatever you want. But there are some clear patterns of play that, you know, pretty much always existed. And the main thing was just there was always triangles on the wing. And a lot of that was Di Stefano. But the quick flank-to-flank passing that happened from that and the triangles that kept appearing on each wing was clearly something that the manager instructed. And so that, you know, that emphasis on that rapid flank-to-flank passing and always having these short connections so, you know, those rotations could happen was, I mean, you can clearly see that's tactical. I mean, that's something that's like, you know, em- that's emphasized in a more structured way today. And like those tactics were kind of the basis for what we see in the modern day. But what impressed me more than that, because, you know, you, you had that in kind of an our own half. And once we got into the final third, that's where like kind of the freedom took over. But it's when we crossed the ball and, you know, we, we didn't, it wasn't particularly accurate. And Eintracht Frankfurt cleared it. It's the fact that we had players positioned in key spaces outside the box to retain possession of the ball. And that that is always a telling sign that the manager is involved there because players just don't really organize themselves in that way. So it wasn't really counterpressing, but it was kind of like the foundation for what we think of like counterpressing today. And it was like Vidal and Zaraga would be positioned like in the half spaces right outside the box. And then you would have Marquitos and Pashin like 15, 20 yards away, kind of positioned in the same area. And then Santa Maria at the halfway line. And they were primed to intercept any clearances, pick them up and quickly play possession out wider into an attacker so that Real Madrid could immediately apply pressure again. And it was spaced really well in such a way that it was just constant wave of attack after wave of attack. And that, I mean, that is a sign of good tactical coaching right there. And, and, and it all, it's also a sign of just him basically enhancing the talent of his team, right? Like a little more freedom with the attack, but on the defensive side of things, he organized things well enough that we, we largely were not exposed on defense, right? Like Eintracht Frankfurt scored an early goal 
And then after that, when Real Madrid got their rhythm, we went up 7-1. It was only until we completely lost focus and we'd already won the game that, you know, with 20 minutes left, you know, Frankfurt scored two. So it wasn't just a dominant offense, offensive performance. It was also a dominant defensive performance. And a lot of that was down to Munoz's tactics. Check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast for a behind-the-scenes look at all the action of the show and more with your favorite competitors. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Spencer Hall. I'm Holly Anderson. I'm Ryan Nanny. I'm Jason Kirk, and we're the hosts of the Shutdown Fullcast, your Avengers of college football podcast. It says here in the script I'm to riff on what that means, and basically what I mean is it's all already spoiled. Every Tuesday, we talk about everything from cooking disasters to pro wrestling to unfashionable pants we wore in middle school. We also do talk about college football every now and then, like mascot fights, announcers fleeing the booth early, and unfashionable pants that coaches wear now. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it should be taken, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Matt, I want to swing this over to you. Um... Anything to add on Miguel Munoz, but like obviously there are so many interesting pieces in this game apart from the you know the alphas and Di Stefano and Pushkas that we I mean we have barely talked about Pushkas if at all so there's like that coming too but um, what 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 are the things that interested you beyond those those uh, obvious yeah, obvious so figures? yeah there's a couple things I want to build off from what Om just said and maybe we can uh, then get into some discussion on Pushkas but. Um, I, I I mean, you clearly saw the patterns that Ohm's talking about, the one-twos on the wing, the triangles. I mean, Real Madrid used that time and time again. It was it was so easy for them to just draw a man in to a quick one-two pass, and then especially with Hento and that speed, just let him loose and go down that wing. Um, but I think what you saw from this Real Madrid team is kind of what created the club's ethos and this attacking DNA. And um, I always use this quote that Valdano said about Real Madrid's style and what like what our philosophy is. It's to reach the opposition's box as quickly as possible and just to uh, obviously pepper them with shots and just continually um, just rampage on the attack. And that's what this team did. I mean, they were so direct. They were so, I mean, first, everything they were thinking about was scoring goals. They won this game 7-3, 7-3. Pushkas had four goals, De Stefano had three, and De Stefano hit the post. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And I mean, I just there were moments where De Stefano would dribble down the heart of the pitch, the center of the pitch, and just nobody could touch him. I mean, he would just slalom through so many defenders. I was not impressed with Eintracht's defending, and um, I just I just loved how direct this team was. I loved like. This is where the Real Madrid ethos was formed and kind of created. The I think it's important to point just like how the, like the golf in class between the two teams was like to me was reflected in the scoreline. Like seven three, if you haven't watched this game, that could mean a, a bunch of different things to you. It could mean something was like flattering one way or the other. Who knows? But like when you watch the game, and also taking into account that. Um, Frankfurt was not a bad team. Like they, they didn't just get to the final randomly. They and they they beat Rangers, who was a really good team at the time, twelve four in the semifinals on aggregate. They get to the final and like they're not really quite sure of like how to defend this team that was clearly ahead of its time. Um, they were dragged in, like around the pitch and kind of their their 
their method of and style of play just didn't hold up against a team like this. It you know you, they probably needed to do something different. And by the time they realized, as Om alluded to earlier, it was too late. The score was like already racked up. Um, there was also instances in this game that the way they defended sometimes they found themselves somehow in transition defending like a counterattack of of sorts where like Real Madrid had numbers attacking and Frankfurt had like one or two players. And the way they defended those reminded me of when Baran is left by himself defending like an onslaught of players. Like they were in that situation a few times. And uh, like just the movement of like the entire team and the the fluidity of the team was like just uh, at, at a level that Frankfurt were, were not on, quite frankly. So like it was clear to me that there was just like this, it was two really good teams and then this team is a dynasty for a reason. And you could see why when you watch this final. Yeah. And just to like, because you mentioned like when they found themselves defending, like in transition with just a couple of guys that really showed on corner kicks. I think Real Madrid scored uh, two goals off corner kicks, like off of uh, Eintracht Frankfurt's corner kicks. Um, and like, for some reason they were defending them with only two guys. And that's why it's hard to like, I think take modern tactics and like, impose it on like this era and kind of look at it in that sense like instead i think you just kind of got to see like you know just i think more like tactical motifs you know because it was still there wasn't nearly the same level of managerial instruction as there is today and i did i think kind of take that for what it is and look at it in its time so like you know we we think like you know placing only two guys you know to defend a corner kick it's just that i mean it's stupid but at the time that was kind of common and I mean, Rounder took you know they they dealt with that in a really clever way. So like Pushkas, you know, was you know was kind of the highest outlet, and then Hento would be right outside the box. So like if you know Real Madrid you know could clear it, it short, Hento was right there, and then that, that one-two combination was there, and Di Stefano was arriving from deep, and so we had that three versus two overload. So it was like basically a case of like Frankfurt using all the classic tactics of the time while Real Madrid were using, like, basically, like, futuristic tactical themes. And, like, Kian, you mentioned Frankfurt were a good team. They also had some, like, good individual players, right? Like, like Kress, who was the right winger, and Stein, who was the center forward for the team. Like, there, were, you would see some moments where they just dribble past a couple of players, and you're like, wow, that's, like, that's some really impressive technical ability that's, like, almost on par with Hento. It was just that, like, the system as a whole that Real Madrid had was vastly superior and the way all these like really talented superstars fit into that system just made it overwhelming. Like Frankfurt definitely were not a bad team, and they definitely had some remarkable individuals. Um, I think like um, I wanted to kind of just share some stuff about Pushkas and Di Stefano, but just on the on the note um, of Di Stefano's versatility, there is like a whole slew of great quotes from various different ex-players and coaches about like how versatile he is um and uh like literally you could write uh maybe a pamphlet of like 20 quotes that are really like each one is really interesting about just his versatility alone nothing else um but also like Baldano speaks about like he doesn't mention this outright but like comparing it to the Cristiano thing but like to me their their train of thinking was similar in the sense that Forget about the stats. The stats were bonkers for both of them. Like, they were just an absurd. I think the last time I I checked, I just remember writing about this in my book, that he's 
DiCepano scored scored eighty four percent of the games he played in, or something crazy like that. And this goes back to, as Matt said, like beyond way before this final, when he was in Argentina, and then when by the time he came to Madrid, he was scoring like crazy. Um, but then also Valdano talks about this this idea that he just could not stand losing. Like he he was he was almost psychotic about it. And you know when when things were were going badly for the team, he really felt like he needed to be the one to kind of pull this team together and that's i think part of the part of what made him so versatile is that like he felt like he really needed to help in every aspect of the pitch and um one of the quotes that i really like was miguel muñoz said that when di stefano was on the field it felt like you had two players at each position and um one quote i really like from bobby charlton was uh, he says, who is this man? He takes the ball from the goalkeeper. He tells the defenders what they have to do. Where, wherever he's on the field, he's in a position to get the ball. And then he goes on to talk about like, just his influence and then like his ability to command the midfield and his strength and just the combination of his qualities. So like, my question to you guys is, what is the closest parallel stylistically since him? Does it exist? Does it exist now? Will this role ever exist again? That's tough. Uh, um, I don't. I don't know. I don't think it ex- in the modern game. I don't know that it exists. I mean, maybe it's cliche to say, but I think it's probably closest is probably Messi, just because he can come deep. He can dictate the play. Yeah. Um, he can like do that dirty defensive work when he wants to. Um, usually, he picks his moments, but. Um, I think for De Stefano, it was just all out all the time. Well, with Messi, it's kind of like he'll pick and choose his moments. He'll walk around the pitch. He'll identify where he needs to kind of make that run or make that defensive challenge or make that final pass. Whereas De Stefano just looked to do it all game, every game. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, I would, I would first of all concur with the fact that it doesn't exist today. And I think, I think it's kind of impossible in the modern game for that type of player to exist just because like, yeah. you know, like, um, you know, in the Real Madrid way, um, you know, book, we like, we, we featured, you know, on our site a long time ago, you know, Steven Mandis, the author basically put out stats and he showed like, basically at that time, players on average basically ran like a third or a fourth of what they do today. Mm. The game is just a lot more physical a lot more physically de- a lot more physical and a lot more physically demanding than it was back then and for someone to play that role in like a modern context like they completely exhaust themselves by halftime it's not it's not super practical and you have like structural ways to basically compensate for what Di Stefano was doing um but if i was to like have a modern parallel i would actually say more modric than messi um because like mm. i think Di Stefano's goal scoring numbers like they like tell you he's a forward when really he was more of like a midfielder who scored a lot of goals. Like just, I think because of, I, I just think like Di Stefano's level of defensive involvement and the amount of time he spent in buildup, like just can't be compared to any attacking player. Like obviously Messi, I think more so than any other like offensively focused player in the modern era, you know, played in midfield, but like, it's not really that often that you'd see Messi like be receiving the ball from the center backs, definitely not tracking runs from fullbacks and defending corner kicks. Like Messi, like even now, you know, in, in as he's like managing his his very gradual decline, you know, he's still more of a number ten 
Um, whereas with Di Stefano, like literally on every single play, he's organizing the build up from the back and then moving the ball forward. It was just with him, he was organizing all phases of play that he was also on. He was also in the box, finishing off the play every single time. And with Modric, like just the level of deep, we've spoken so many times about how Modric will cover those runs from the fullbacks and how he's always involved. You know, or you know, the first thing we focused on with Modric before we talked about his defensive effort years later was just how he was so crucial to the team ticking and how he was so crucial to to our ball progression. And to me, like if if you were to put Di Stefano in a modern context, you probably wouldn't play him as a forward. You would probably play him in central midfield as like kind of an all round you know, attacking midfielder in, in a midfield three as like the most advanced interior, which is kind of what Modric was in like Ancelotti's system. Um, so, yeah, just I think kind of like based off that, like, yeah, it, it, I think it would it he would kind of be that type of all action midfielder in today's game. Modric is like, Modric is a good one. And, you know, obviously the, the thing with trying to find a parallel is that you have to, th- take a little bit from different players. So, like, there's not really one profile, but Mordish maybe is one aspect of it. Mordish obviously doesn't have the attacking stats to go with it. Uh, I think there's a little bit of Zidane in there too, but Zidane obviously also doesn't have the the goal-scoring prolific, um, the goal-scoring repertoire that Di Stefano had. One player that is kind of random that I thought of was Frank Lampard in the sense that mm-hmm. um, did a lot of midfield work, was constantly there, kind of string the passes together but also would join the attack and score a bunch of goals but still that it still doesn't really feel right um what's the basketball equivalent is it essentially lebron james who can <laughs> play five positions <laughs> uh yeah I, mean, I guess it's like beyond playing multiple positions though it's about it's not that he can play any position it's that he actually physically won and played yeah. every position that's, yeah. that's the difference and it's it's about like also like using that to like positively influence all phases of the game right like you see a lot of players that want to be that guy and they just like end up like there's diminishing returns they end up kind of hurting the team trying to do all of that because they can't play all their roles best like with Messi like sometimes he is like obsessed with dropping you know overly deep and stuff and that doesn't necessarily help the team at times it's like I think one of the few criticisms you can poke across Messi's career as he's declined is that like he always wants to be at the ball. He always wants to be in the center of the pitch. He always wants to be deep. And that kind of kind of messed things up structurally. But the way Di Stefano was doing it, it was kind of always in reaction to where players were. And it was always to keep the balance of the team. And if you just stop and think about like the, the kind of mental strain that puts on you to be constantly making those calculations and having the physical ability to be in those places at exactly the right time, like it really is remarkable and it is kind of surprising that, like, he isn't in GOAT conversation just purely because of, like, the role he was playing at the time. We have five minutes, I just realized, until Lucas joins. Um, <laughs> Can I, uh, if we have five minutes, it, I just want to quickly, uh, I want to quickly talk about Pushkas because I think we yep. got to fit him in here. Yep. And um, I'll quickly say my two cents. I feel like he, I mean, everything, I felt like well, first off, he would take a shot at any opportunity. Any sliver of a chance he had to take a <laughs> shot, he would take it. Yeah. And But it wasn't like – it's not like Casemiro taking a shot from 40 yards out and you're like, oh, Casemiro's going to take a shot here because that's what he loves to do. But uh, every time he hit it, it felt like it was just 
a ripping shot so powerful and just perfectly placed like every single time almost upper 90 <laughs> and it was just incredible he just turn get it shoot and it would just be bam in the back of the net so i mean i was impressed with him and that's why i think he could translate over to the modern game just because he i mean everything he hit was just perfect it felt like yeah um on pushkas notes before we wrap it up um that yeah real quickly and then i like want to stick in canario because i promised i would like yep. so yeah he was pushkas was a primary free kick and penalty kick specialist and he he also like he he had more expansive technical ability than just shooting the ball even though like that was definitely his most iconic thing. You know, he was a, he was a good dribbler, good movement in the box, and he would like drop deep as well alongside Di Stefano to help build up. So Canario was the right winger, and you know the thing with Hento is like he was he had that inefficiency in his tact that you know when he all things considered he was so good offensively it didn't matter. But Hento was definitely kind of a defensive liability. He didn't really track back that much, so that required Canario to basically be a wing back and create a back four at all times. Um, at the same time, this guy was a really good dribbler, had top end pace, and he was actually responsible for creating Real Madrid's first two goals of the game by going one versus one with the fullback and getting the ball into the box to cross and then actually shooting on goal the second time. So like, I want to compare him to Lucas Vasquez, but the truth is he was actually a lot better than Lucas Vasquez is today. Like he was a star in his own right. But he did so much dirty defensive work that he provided this key level of defensive balance. And, you know, based on that, it's not surprising that he's not really remembered at all today. But to me, he was a really key player on that side and a top, top quality player. Um, I think I have a I have a Pushkas quote that I want to end with that is not commonly known or used in any article I've come across. And it's a very rare one. And it's... Uh, the only reason I saw it is because it comes in a, a book. I think it's in the Jonathan Wilson book that I that I read. Um, but I have it here in my notes. Um, so this was, the context was that, if you remember, well, if you, none of us were born, so none of us remember. But like if you if you're reading up on <laughs> Pushka's history, um, there was a, like a two-year period where he was banned from football and no one would sign him. And no one, no one would risk it because he, first of all, he was severely out of shape. He was older and uh no one just wanted to take a gamble on him and the only one who did was Santiago Bernabeu who you know if, if he he didn't have the Heinz the the vision to 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 sign Pushkas maybe the club's history would have been completely different and so there's this great quote from Pushkas when Bernabeu wanted to sign him um he shows up I guess in 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 Madrid and he's and he's really really fat at that point and Pushkas says um, I'm too fat. I can't possibly play. I need to get my weight down. But there I was with the very next day in Madrid, the size of a balloon, having a very weird conversation with Santiago Bernabeu. There was no interpreter present. He was rabbiting away in Spanish, me in Hungarian. In the end, I threw out my arms and gestured, listen, this is all very well, but have you looked at me? I'm 18 kilos overweight. Bernabeu replied and said, that's not my problem, it's yours. And that was that I was a Real Madrid player, if a rather heavy one. Bernabeu gave me $5,000 right away, which came in very <laughs> handy. And that was it. And it's this really just funny quote that, like, he was very self-aware about his fitness. But, like, even at that point in his Real Madrid career, although he got his weight down, he wasn't, like, I would say slim. Um, but, man, he was good. Um, and I think, and that I was just thinking about this. Could you imagine, what's the equivalent now? It would be, like, 
if Florentino um, signs someone really overweight who's already over 30 years old and hasn't played football in two years, what would the reaction be to something like that? It No <laughs> one would accept it, right? Yeah. I guess, like, OG Ronaldo doesn't really count because when we signed him, he was still, like, you know, around his prime. Yeah. And then, like, his weight issue had, was more really just a medical condition than anything else. Yeah. But, like, I guess it's kind of similar. Like, I think I think brilliance-wise, like, talent-wise, at least, I think we can draw a parallel between those two. Kind of. But, I mean, also the context of him not playing football for two years. Um, yeah, it's just crazy. Was, yeah. Um, all right, gentlemen, this was fun. Um, oh, you're you're gonna choose the next one, so I'm gonna just put you on the spot here. So, um, I'm gonna choose the next one. You're gonna choose the next historical segment, and uh, we're, we're gonna swing it over to you because you haven't cho- chosen one yet. So think hard, and uh, for everyone listening, thank you for joining. But stick around for part two, just around the corner, and Halamari. Halamari. Quick break to give a shout out to our patrons and say thank you um, to everyone who supports the show. As you know, patreon.com slash managingmadrid. That's where you go to get access to bonus shows, our loan tracker show. When the Champions League starts up again, access to those post-game shows and, and other bonus shows that we do throughout the year. Uh, if you want access to those, if you want to support the show, get rewards, get responses to your questions, go to patreon.com slash managingmadrid. Shout out to these $10 plus patrons who get a specific shout out on the podcast. So, big, big shout out to Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Juan Balasia01, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Antakiro, Pascal Said, Leon Stavronakis, Christian Gonzalez, Essa Hariri, Bjorn Salvador, Ilian Zako, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Saad Omar, Oluwapamimo Oladunjoy, Patrick Odayafadi, Christian Toft, Dan Berthy, Charles Williams, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilikar, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Raul Gutierrez, Raghav Potluri, Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujai Wani, Peña Mararista, San Francisco Bay Area, Brandon Stevens, Casper Muscala, Catherine Fagundo, Zoran Bosancic, Crystal Glass, Rafael Servia, Karen Scherer, Somanchu Singh, Brennan Powers, Rovi Tagliev, Amy L, Anthony Armesto, Shabal Sharapov, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Bernard Kufour, Jack Edgar, Ashik Bashar, AMB6901, Daniel Pinkney, Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, Solomon Ortiz, and Philip Hammer. Thank you all. Amazing, just beautiful people who support the show. Really appreciate it. And without further ado, here's part two, the mailbag with Lucas. Let's go. Okay, welcome to part two of the Managing Madrid podcast. Joining me, as always, for the Thursday mailbag is Lucas Navarrete. Lucas, how you doing? Hey, Kian, everything good here? Everything good there? You're enjoying the rain in Valencia? Well, that's the one thing that <laughs> which isn't going so well. But yeah, other than that, it's it's good. So um, it's funny. We uh, we spent, like last week when we did our, our mailbag podcast, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, what's the starting lineup against Levante. And I had a suspicion that um, obviously we knew that it was going to be outdated a week later because you just have no idea what the health status of the team is. And just this morning we got news, unfortunately, about Modric being out. So we'll talk about all that um, um, at some point throughout the mailbag when questions about injuries and, and the Levante game come up. 
First question in our mailbag is from Patrick Odayafari. He says, Hi, Kian and Lucas. As always, great content. I enjoy listening to you guys and your takes on Madrid. A couple points. Is this the end of Marcelo as a first-choice left-back? I thought Mendy had a very good debut, especially on the defensive side with his tackling, and he clearly has the energy to get up and down the pitch. Also, why are so many... Okay, let's end it there uh, and then come back to it. Um, end of Marcelo. Well, I, I, I even though Mendy played phenomenal in his in his debut, I think Marcelo still has so much to offer on the offensive side of the of the pitch, and especially considering Real Madrid's struggles playmaking and creating plays for for the for the strikers. So, well, I think that Mendy will offer definitely a a, a, a better defensive performance for for the team. I still think that. If you put all those aspects of the game in a balance, I think Marcelo is still a bit more useful than Mendy because of his creativity offensively. I think it's what are we three games in, so the end of anything is is yeah, definitely well, quite premature. So um, I mean, this is probably just going to be one of those things where you see you could see Marcelo in home games, maybe Mendy in some tough away games, maybe you see Marcelo in the big games, maybe vice versa. I think it just it does give. It gives Zidane good options this season, and I, and I was yeah. really encouraged with Mendy's performance. Um, also, why are so many fans freaking out, uh, Patrick says. We have not seen Hazard as, at his peak yet. When he gets back to full fitness and with Bale playing as well as he is, I'm not too worried offensively. Bale, Hazard, Benzema, Jovic will create and score goals. I'm more worried defensively with the ramos Varan partnership. They seem to be getting worse, and I'm not sure whose fault it is. It's possibly Ramos, although Varane hasn't been in good form since 17-18. I don't know. Like, we, we spent a lot of time just talking about this specific issue, about, like, the unfair criticism of, of Varane last week and kind of the team's issues. I'm not sure if I have too much to add to that. Um, now, I do actually, to be to be fair, I think this question came in maybe while we were recording on, on Thursday. So, uh, but is there anything that you wanted to add to this? Well, I I want to say that, Hazard playing as well as he was playing in the Premier League is not a guarantee. You know he has to adapt to a new team, to a new league, to a whole, a wholly different defensive uh, schemes from other coaches in in La Liga. He won't have as much room to operate as he did in the Premier League, even though we know that he's a a, a tremendous player. We still don't know what Madrid will get from him. Uh, so I think that it's a little bit dangerous to assume that some, if not most, of Madrid's struggles uh, offensively are going to disappear when Hazard comes back. I think it's fair to say he's not going to be in 100% physical shape either when he comes back. Yeah, well, um, sure. Because he wasn't in the preseason and then he got a relapse and he had an injury so he wasn't training at full speed. So it's it's there's also going to be, I think, a, little, a few growing pains to start. Uh, before he gets into full stride. Um, Daniel Pinkney says, with our average new injury per week, I think it actually <laughs> is more than that now, uh, one per week, uh, is it time we start taking a look at our questioning at or questioning what is going on during the training sessions or with the conditioning coaches? Well, it's a legitimate question. I don't think Real Madrid's amount of injuries are common or normal. Plus, I think that there's been like three or four thigh injuries, which is a little bit strange. But, you know, 
these are professionals. I, I assume that you know all the coaching staff is well prepared. They obviously have done their research, their research in every in every aspect. So it's dangerous to 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 point you know fingers at them and say you know they're to blame for all the injuries. Although I, I'm the first one to say that it's not normal what's happening to to these players in these first months of the of the season. I, I'll be honest, I don't really buy. I don't buy it that it, that's the it's the fitness staff's fault or. Uh, you know, what's going on during the training sessions, the conditioning coaches. I think, unfortunately, you look around and Real Madrid is not the only team with a bunch of injuries. Um, you could even take this back to last season where Atletico literally, they had at some point like every player in the squad injured at one point or the other throughout the season and their back line never played together. It was a new injury every week. Barca this season haven't been healthy at all. Um, I do think there's a lot of things at play. One is... Um, well, first of all, like, you know, players can get injured anywhere doing anything. Like, there's, you know, like, Jovic got a knock, although thankfully it doesn't seem serious now, but he got a knock over the international break. Um, Modric was another one, and, like, some of that stuff, you know, like, I don't think it's on the club's training training staff. There's There's another way to look at this. Like, if they're not training as intensely, and then a player gets injured during a game, you know, like there's then there's going to be people saying, well, maybe you should have prepared the team better or they should have been more fit. There's all I think there's all kinds of variables that go into this. And yeah. I don't I don't think there's I don't, I don't I don't know enough about sports science. But from what I understand and what I've read, I think there's um, I don't think it's it's like someone's fault that this is happening. No. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the only thing that worries me about all these injuries is the muscle injuries, you know. Yeah. Brahim especially, you know, he recovered. He trained with the team for two or three days and then picked up another one. It's, it's just a little bit strange. Perhaps he was in a, in a bit of a rush to come back and help the team, especially, you know, when that he'll be able to compete for, for a spot in the starting lineup this season. So, I don't know. I, I, I just think that... The coaching staff should be very careful and, and cautious about you know everyone's recoveries because these injuries are very tricky. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's the one thing that I think that can be pinned on a club if they get it wrong is that if they rush a player back or they force a player back when, you know, because a player will generally say that he's ready and the, exactly. it's up to the coaching staff to actually assess it exactly. like scientifically whether he's ready or not. It's happened in the past with Bale two seasons ago, I think. Yep. When he had to be taken off of a classical, I yep. think it was two seasons ago. So yeah, the coaching staff and and the doctors need to you know to be very careful because, as you said, players want to get back to the pitch and help the team. Yep. So yeah. Yep, that's all true. Um, we have NBA parallels of this too. Um, with with Kawhi at San Antonio refusing to play when yep. they thought he was ready and. Obviously, Kevin Durant coming back in the finals a bit too early. Um, yeah, and the NBA uh, is kind of the opposite, though. Um, from what I think, uh, well, I, I really think that players and, and, and medical staffs in the NBA are always so, so, so cautious and, and you know, and patient with, with everyone's recoveries. Perhaps because, you know, obviously they're playing four games a week most of the time. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, Frederick Rantakiro says... If I'm not mistaken, we wanted Pogba when he left Juve, but the reason we didn't sign him was that his agent Raiola wanted 
too big a fee for himself. Was there any truth to that? And if so, what has changed? Thank you. Well, interesting question. I think that there were some rumors when Pogba left Juventus, but not as big as they were definitely this summer. Perhaps because, you know, Pogba, when in that time, wasn't an undisputed starter for Juve. Perhaps he was during the during his last season there, but definitely not the the you know this biggest star he is now. So obviously, you know that if you sign a, a Rayola player, you're gonna uh, to, you're going to to need to pay a lot of money to to the agent and also to the player because he negotiates big contracts for his players. So. Real Madrid knew that at the time, and they probably know that uh, now as well. So, well, the question of like what's changed that Zidane has come now. So, yeah. Um, in when Zidane was here the first time, I don't think you could really justify getting Pogba with all the midfield and with Modric and Cruz being in their peak. Um, now, yeah. now he can justify asking for someone like Pogba. Uh, but I, you know, like with Raiola. You already well, you know, know well enough that he will make astronomical demands, and you can just see that with his with the Manchester United deal. Like it wasn't just that he got a cut; it's just that he actually got an extra like X million, which I don't want to get the number wrong, but when I remember I remember checking, and it was like a really significant amount of money that just goes into his pocket directly. And I and Florentino, this is kind of the reason that he doesn't seem to like Jorge Mendes or dealing with his clients too much either. Um, James would have been the last one under under Mendes, and but yeah. he's still here. So I think I do I I do understand it too. By the way, I I, I don't I don't think an agent should have that much power, and um, certain agents do, and that's just the world we live in. But I can understand Florentino being hesitant about working with those people. Um, but if the coach wants him bad enough, I think the answer is like that's what's changed. Exactly, I agree, and and I, you know this this is tied up to what I said in last week, last week's episode, which is that I think the market has changed. You'll and you will end up needing to pay, you know, more money to your players if you want to sign the stars. Yeah, Alexander Humdrum says, if you could name one talent for each part of the team, goalkeeper, defense, midfield, forward, to bring in, which would it be? Mine would be Donnarumma. Trent Alexander, Arnold, Zaniolo, and Mbappe. Hard to leave out Sancho, and if I could classify him as a right-sided mid, then I'd put him in there. Anyways, we have Odegaard coming back, so we're sorted. Thanks for a great pod. Um, I'm assuming this question says, says talent, so that probably means young players and not established players, which changes the question a little bit. Okay, and also, do we need to take into account whether they're actually available or not? <laughs> I mean, that stuff. Maybe, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I obviously said Van Dijk for the central defender spot, but, you know, Liverpool is not going to sell him, so. That's true. Does he qualify? But he's a bit older now, too. I don't know. How old is he? Um, well. I'll tell you right now. Him. Hello? 28. Yeah, 28. 28. Um, so... I don't know if he fits. So, but maybe you could twist it another way. Maybe you could go for De Ligt, who's young. Um, yeah. I, I'll be honest. So I do like, I do like the names that were listed here to an extent for by Alexander. If you went by goalkeeper Donnarumma, I'm okay with. He's still. It seems like he's been around forever, but he's still 20 only. Yeah. Um, if you think oh, about, he's 20? yeah, he's 20. Uh, if on. you, th- yeah, I know. It seems like he's been around for 20 years. Um, 
if you think about our weakest position across the defense, it's right back right now. So yeah, Alexander-Arnold makes sense for me, uh, but I'd be okay with Delicht too, obviously. Um, Zaniolo, like, Zaniolo like, is a kind of a... I like him, but I think there's other options you could have chose there. You could have, you could have gone for De Jong. You could have... Um, you could have gone for someone like Ruben Neves if you wanted a defensive midfielder yeah. to back up Casemiro. You could have gone yeah. multiple different ways for that position, I think. Mbappe is the obvious one for for the forward oh, position, though. Yeah, yeah. I got I got Donnarumma for the goalkeepers part, even though I don't think that's a position of need for Madrid right now. In the defensive side, I, I've got Van Dijk because I didn't take into account the talent thing. Now that you said, it's probably the leaked because I think Real Madrid will need... Uh, I mean, the market is probably thinner at the centre-back spot than the, at the flanks. And, you know, I still kind of hope that Carvajal <laughs> comes back to his former self. Uh, in the midfield, I definitely pick the young. I think he will be a very a crucial player and, you know, a, a key and undisputed uh, presence in the FIFA 11 week uh, year after year and obviously for a forward spot I got Mbappé as well yeah if you were to I let... think Young will be very you know very dangerous for Real Madrid for many years to come I agree um, I think if you were to classify this as like 23 and under um, the other two that as you know as being a talent I would I would also throw in Rodri Hernandez and um, Tangai and Dombele who will I think we we could have had this summer if we really wanted to chase him, but we didn't. Yeah. Those those two I would also put in the short list. Um, yeah. Brendan Power says, "Has your thoughts about the placement of this team at the end of the season changed, and if so, why?" Mm, well, I uh, it, it's changed a bit because I expected a bit of a, of a bigger change in the transfer window. To be honest, so I, when last season ended, I kind of thought that everything was going to be better than it is now because Real Madrid were going to change most of the roster, if not, well, if not most, at least a big part of it. And, you know, that hasn't happened other than, obviously, Hazard for the starting lineup. Other than other than him, the rest of, of the signings will spend most of the season on the bench. So I think that this season could be difficult, even though I also expect, you know, some of the of the core players like Ramos, Modric and Cross, you know, kind of making a bit of a statement and playing better than they did last season. Right. Yeah, nothing has changed for me. Um I still haven't seen enough. I by Christmas this might be answer or after the class to go. I think we'll, we'll have enough sample size to kind of know something. Um now it's too soon for me to change prediction from the beginning of the season which was we don't win the league and we might win the Champions League. Um Yeah, but you did expect more changes in the transfer window, right? Uh, I expected more changes to the starting lineup. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's my point. Yeah. yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, Patrick Odiafati says, "Hi, Kian and Lucas. How hope you're both doing well. Thank you, Patrick. For the game Thanks, this weekend, I'm thinking that Zidane will bring Hazard on from the bench for 20 to 25 minutes just to get his legs under him, and start him for the PSG game midweek since he only returned to full training on Tuesday." I have heard mixed reports about Jovic's health too. Maybe suffered a re- reoccurrence of his ankle injury from preseason. Anyway, what would your starting eleven for Saturday's game against Levante be, and how much would you change that from the eleven against PSG? Would you have Mendy over Marcelo? Thanks again. Love the podcast. 
Um, so that this is a good question because we, you know, we spend so much yep. time talking about Levante, but forgetting that PSG is just around the corner. So we have to <laughs> think about that. So how would you juggle this? Well, I think, well, first of all, to tell Patrick that Jovic seems to be okay. He trained with the squad today and, you know, the Serbia's injury report was strange to begin with and it's even more strange now seeing that Jovic was able to complete the training session with the rest of, uh, of the squad. Then I think that Real Madrid need to need to take every home Liga game very seriously. And even though, you know, if it, this was another year, another season, I would rest some of the starters so that they could be completely ready for the for the PSG game. I think that it sends wrong message message to to rest players like you know Cross, Casemiro, Benzema, and Ramos for the PSG game. Like you are kind of telling the the core players that you know these games are not important. So I I think that. Mm, they need to take advantage of this FIFA break. It wasn't very intense, so I think that they re- they should be ready to start on against Levante and then take on PSG as well. About Hazard, I think what he what Patrick says is makes a lot of sense. I think that's what what Zidane will do in you know just come, coming on, off the bench and you know making sure that he's completely ready for the PSG game and not rushing his recovery, knowing that he won't be in in very good shape this Saturday. Yeah. Um, to me, like, with Modric injured now, too, uh, obviously two big winners from this and the fact that we don't have many midfield options right now, the two winners nope. are Isco and James, who... Um, well, Isco's... Is Isco still nigg- he's a niggling injury? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, Isco isn't even training with the squad, so he won't be available okay. against the for sure. So then the biggest winner of all is James. <laughs> Who just came back. <laughs> Who just came back. Um, now, I, I so it'll be very interesting, obviously, with Bale up for, against Levante, but that probably means that he's for sure against PSG is going to play. Um, one thing that you know you mentioned, and I'm, and I'm curious to, to see what happens, and to me it's a big indicator of what happens against PSG, is who starts at left back between... Mendy and, and Marcelo. Yeah. Um, because I think if we see Mendy and Levant against Levante or vice versa, it's Marcelo, then we'll see the other against PSG. I mean, it's not always Militao a sure will indicator. start against PSG also. Because my, uh, Ramos and Nacho are suspended for that game, I think. Mm. Okay. So Militao yeah. will, uh, will be forced to start in that game, yeah. That's a bit right, yeah. Um, so perhaps perhaps Zidane will give him some minutes against Levante because you know yeah. f- your yeah. first official game for Real Madrid away against PSG is not against Mbappe is not what you want. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, now back to your point originally about we need to take every home game seriously. I fully agree with that, and for that reason, I actually go full strength. And I I think in years past, like you would think that that's crazy. Like, hey guys, like you'd be like, uh, PSG is way more important than Levante. I get it, but we're dropping points to Vida Lead right now. We've, in the past year or so, we've dropped points to multiple small teams in La Liga. And to be honest, PSG, whatever happens in that game, we're going to advance from that group, I think. Um, now, yep. when you look at that group, I think it's maybe a bit more difficult than we think because I think Galatasaray, that's a, that's a kind of a tricky game. They had some good signings this summer, but and Turkey is not an easy place to play. But um, I think you can go into that PSG game with a draw 
and worst case scenario loss and like your season's not derailed um no a loss against psg away wouldn't be a drama no considering the fact that they'll still probably advance from the group i'm not saying that this is what they should just throw away the game no, against no. psg regardless you're going to put a good lineup in both games i think but i'm just yeah. saying like i would i would much i would be comfortable with a full strength lineup whatever zidane sees that as you know it probably might be different than what we see it as but I, I think it's so important to just get every single victory you get yeah. you have in La Liga. Um, you have a you have an insane yeah. schedule coming in up uh, in September, as you've written about Lucas with Atleti, yeah. PSG, Sevilla away. October we have a Clasico. You need you need three points everywhere. Um, so yeah, go full strength against Levante. Yeah, my point is this is obviously fiction, and you don't get to choose. But if you actually got to choose between a loss against PSG or a loss at Sevilla, what would you get? I, 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 I'd comfortably get a, a loss against PSG away, away yeah. with the we have. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Definitely. I agree. I'd rather I'd rather go full strength at, at the Sanchez-Pizjuan and get a win there than, you know, getting a win against PSG and then dropping points in the Sanchez-Pizjuan or against Levante. Yep, I completely agree. Um, now, having said all that, obviously we know some some... For sure, things which is Bale will not play against Levante. Isco will not play right. against uh, Levante. That you've now brought to my attention. Obviously, Modric is missing both, so that likely means Kroos is going to get overplayed probably this month. Safe yeah. to say, he's going to get a lot of minutes and get tired at some point. Um, he's obviously coming back from an international break with two grueling games for Germany, um, and we'll likely see James who has to be there. If not against Levante, then I'd say by PSG, you might see him. Yeah, sure. But, um, yeah. And, and... I, expect a, I expect a 4-2-3-1 against Levante with probably considering the situation with Militao starting over Varane. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then with Cross and Casemiro in the midfield. Uh, Hazard, uh, Hazard, well, maybe not Hazard. It's, it's, it's so tough with the with the with the injuries. Vinicius, James, maybe Vasquez on the right and Benzema at front. Yeah, it's so yeah. tough because James and Hazard are probably not ready to start. So we may also see Fede Valverde get some minutes too here. Yeah, yeah. But I think the Militao situation is very important for the for the away game against PSG. You need to give him some minutes against Levante and probably use that game to rest Baran maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Last one. Varun says, "How much can we see the positive side of a player's intention in getting yellow or red card?" What I mean is, I've read a staggering statistic on the number of red cards and yellow cards of Sergio Ramos, and at the same time, I saw Karim Benzema in his entire career has only thirteen yellow cards and zero red cards. My point is this. Um, can I say Benzema didn't put enough effort in saving our team from something dangerous, even if it is at the cost of taking a yellow for the team in, uh, in a certain situation? Can I say Benzema never put in that extra effort, fearing, fearing a yellow, whereas Ramos put his heart out for the team, even at the cost of getting a yellow? I know I didn't put my intentions in this question clearly. Please try to understand what I meant. I am Karim's biggest fan, though. Um, I think I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, Lucas, you you want to take a crack at this one? Well, first of all, he's not Karim's biggest fan. I am. <laughs> Just kidding, Barun. <laughs> and then, well, the the situation he's he Barun is is saying is probably not 
it doesn't make much sense. Be, first, first of all, because Ramos and, and Benzema played two different positions. You know, ben, you, we rarely see strikers, you know, having to to stop plays or prevent counterattacks or things of that nature. And even though Ramos has a very worrying record of of yellow cards and and, and red cards, I don't, I don't think these uh, bookings have anything to do with effort. Yeah, essentially the question is, if I were to summarize it in my own interpretation, is this. It's that, can we correlate cards with effort? And the answer to me is no. Yeah, the answer is no. Um, You can correlate mistimed challenges. You can correlate, uh, in Ramos' case many times, um, hot-headedness and immaturity to red cards and yellow cards when the team really needed him. Um, Certainly the one that I always like, stands out to me is obviously the Manita Classico where Ramos in that exactly. to me that was actually his most excusable red card because in that yeah. moment he was all of us he, we all would have done the same thing we would have just well, gone and broke some there, yeah that's true <laughs> For commitment, at he least. went out of his way to also f- grab Puyol's face on the way out um, <laughs> but I mean no I, I don't think this is generally correlated um, well, this is this is something I, I, I've questioned myself over over the years because I, I do think that in some very, very, very specific situations, if not effort, at least, you know, some kind of yellow cards show commitment, like the one we're talking about is obviously not what we want to see from players, but Ramos showed greed and commitment with that with that red card, you know? At, at least we saw that he cares. So, yeah, it's just, the, the, I mean, Varun's, um, Baron's question actually makes sense, even though I th- I don't think it's maybe effort, but in some specific situation, it's probably it talks probably a little bit about commitment, maybe. You could you could maybe say awareness, um, an understanding yeah. of a certain situation, like for example, Messi's game winner in the Clasico that made it three two in the last second. Yeah, could someone have just gone in with 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 legs flying and just taken a card to prevent yeah. that breakaway? Some, you know, yeah, that, that that's that's awareness, IQ, yeah. Yeah. Um, so probably like situational awareness, knowing when to do commit a tactical foul, which I think, to be honest, if you rewind back to some of the goals Real Madrid have conceded over the years in transition, they could have actually done that which, when they didn't, and um, instead the results in a bad situation. Yeah. Um, that was the last question we had. Um, any concluding thoughts, Lucas, before I wrap it up? Well, not really. I just think that next week is going to be crucial for Real Madrid, taking on PSG on Wednesday and then visiting Sevilla, Lopetegui Sevilla next Sunday. So it will be very tough for for Madrid and quite possibly a bit of a season-defining moment for for Madrid, even though we're still obviously in September. Um, And on top of that, which uh, Lucas talks about the kind of the upcoming and the pivotal month that is September... Um, on managingwinter.com there's a lot of great content right now and there's two two pieces on Zidane and so, like a statistical deep dive on on him yeah. and his tactics and then also I wrote some observations on on James and Isco and Mendy's defending and Odegaard um, so go on managingwinter.com and check those out and we'll obviously cover the upcoming uh, month from hell like crazy on the website so stay tuned and lock it in Lucas thanks for doing this we'll chat thanks, next Ian. week Hala Madrid thanks everyone Hala Madrid